Amen. Open your Bible, please, to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. While you're turning, let me just once again express our thanks and appreciation to this good church. We've certainly enjoyed our visit with you. You people are so kind and receptive. I got to tell you, I really enjoy your Saturday night prayer time. I love the men's prayer meeting on Sunday mornings. I love the music in your church, the special music, the, um, all your pianists. You're just blessed with an abundance of pianists. But not only are they good on the piano, they play with spirit. And they play with zeal and enthusiasm for the Lord. And your choir the same. And I think you just need to ask my wife to be in the choir because wherever she goes, I go. I told our church, if you want me to stay as your pastor, you better take care of my wife. Because I told Lori, if she ever leaves me, I'm going with her. So if, I'll tell you, this is a, a sweet, sweet spot in the road for us. And I just pray that God has used us to be an encouragement to you as a church to really just be a supplement to the great uh, church that you have. And God knows in his sovereignty he knows that your pastor needed a, a time of rest for their home, for their marriage, and uh, really for the church. I told him, for crying out loud, if your church can't go on without you, then you haven't done a very good job pastoring. Uh, they're not following a man, they're following Jesus. And surely by now you've trained your people to do the work of the ministry. Yes, they'll miss you, but they should be able to keep on keeping on. And you've, uh, you've shown faithfulness in this month, and I just want to commend you for that. We are blessed to be Americans. Amen. Next weekend, America is going to celebrate her 246th birthday. And with all our problems, we still have the greatest nation in all of the world. Foreigners still desire to move here, legally and illegally. But I want to remind this self-centered, pleasure-seeking generation of Christians, freedom is never free. It's time we get the word out that patriotism is not a sin. The 4th of July is more than a keg of beer, picnics, and softball games. Back in 1973, this is back in the day. I graduated high school in 1971. Back in 1973, John Glenn was debating, if you'll remember, he was debating with Howard Metzenbaum in his run for the United States Senate. And Senator Metzenbaum asked, asked John Glenn, he asked him this question, how can you run for Senate when you have never held a real job? And John Glenn's response, Google it, see if I'm exaggerating, John Glenn's response is accredited to the greatest impromptu political speech in American history with no notes, no preparation. This is what he said. I served 23 years in the United States Marine Corps. I was through two wars. 
I flew 149 missions. My plane was hit by anti-aircraft fire on 12 different occasions. I was in the space program. It wasn't my checkbook, it was my life that was on the line. This was not a nine to five job where I took time off to take the daily cash receipts to the bank. I ask you to go with me as I went the other day to a veteran's hospital and you look those men in the eye with their mangled bodies and you tell them they didn't hold a real job. You go with me to any gold star mother and you look her in the eye and you tell her that her son did not hold a real job. You go with me to the space program and go as I've gone to the widows and orphans of Ed White and Gus Grissom and Roger Chaffee and you look those kids in the eye and you tell them their dad didn't hold a real job. You go with me on Memorial Day coming up and you stand in Arlington National Cemetery where I have more friends than I'd like to remember. And you watch those waving flags and you stand there and you think about this nation and you tell me that those people did not have a real job. I tell you, Howard Metzenbaum, you should be on your knees every day of your life thanking God that there were some men, some real men who held a real job. And that required a dedication to purpose and love of country and a dedication to duty that was more important than life itself. And their self-sacrifice is what has made this country possible. I have held a job, Howard. How about you? He had a real job. When we come to the book of Jonah, he is no stranger to this audience. He is a man that became weary in well-doing, as many of you have experienced in your lifetime as well. He came to a place where he was tired of people. He was disgusted with the sinful condition and the reprobate condition of people. People. He knew sinners deserved hell, and he was at a point in his life where he thought that they should get there as fast as they can. But he himself, he enjoyed rather comfortable living. He enjoyed the blessings of God. He had health, and he had a certain amount of wealth. He was certainly well taken care of. But he forgot the value of his real job. I want to read just a few verses to bring back to memory to you of the life of Jonah. I'm going to read Jonah chapter 1, the first four verses. You follow along silently. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with him unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. And you know the rest of the story. Now, I want to draw your attention to the first two words in verse number two. Arise. Go. And tonight I want to preach a little bit to remind you of our real job. Father, I'm speaking to an eternal bound audience. The vast majority, if not all, would profess to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But tonight, knowing that you're not willing that any should perish, we pray for that man or woman that is just one heartbeat from hell. We pray that before the night is over, you would have opened their eyes to where they would clearly see and understand the gospel and be saved. And certainly before it's eternally too late. But for the folks here tonight that are saved and those members of this wonderful church, would you stir up our hearts for our real job? Help us to see that a church that doesn't fulfill her purpose surrenders her right to exist. Help us, O oh God, to keep the main thing the main thing and to do our real job. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Notice in verse number three, the first six words and the last six words of that verse. But Jonah rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. Here's another classic example of the fatal efforts that men make to escape from the inescapable. Here is a prophet of God, a preacher if you please, who knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew that God was always keenly aware of the location of Jacob, Moses, and Adam. When God said, where art thou, Adam? It wasn't because God didn't know where they were at. He wanted Adam to recognize where he was. God knows where we are. Jonah, I think, he's a prophet. He's well acquainted with the Psalms. I wondered how many times he sang the 139th Psalm. Do you remember that verse in that great song that says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? He knew better. And yet he is making an attempt to flee from the presence of God. I wonder what motivated Jonah to run from God. What made him to put on his Nike running shoes and head for the wharf? Was he ignorant of God's voice? Was he excited about the 2,000-mile Mediterranean cruise to Spain? Was he captivated with the thought of finding one of the seven wonders of the world in a Tarshish museum? 
No, I don't think so. He was so sick of the depravity of man, he honestly did not care that men and women would go to hell. He couldn't stand the heathen. Not only did he want to go and tell them about Jesus, he didn't want to be near them. And he ignored his real job. You know what the opposite of revival is in a church? It's not rebellion. It's apathy. When we just don't care. And then we try to sound super spiritual and hide behind the doctrines of grace. To excuse our lack of faithfulness to God being a witness to men both in Jerusalem and to the uttermost part of the earth. That may impress some of your untaught Bible brethren or carnal Christians. But I'm telling you this, it doesn't impress your heavenly Father. He wants you to go and tell others. Or like he told Jonah, arise, go. What a sad state for a man of God to be in. Not caring for souls. Not winning souls. Not doing his real job. How did this preacher get like this? Well, verse 3 summarizes it, not only for this preacher, but for every one of us in the room. Look in verse 3. It starts with half-hearted obedience. He rose up. And I'll tell you, there's many in our churches today that are patting themselves on the back because they are obeying God in some areas. And half-hearted obedience doesn't cut it. The Bible says he went from the presence of the Lord. Well, you know you can't run from God, but you can run from God's power. You can run from God's purpose. You can run from where God wants you to be and where he will bless you. In verse 3 says he went down. Circle the word down. Anytime that you half-heartedly obey God, anytime that you don't completely obey God, you're going to find your life will be in a downward spiral. And if you're not careful, you'll blame God and curse God and say, look what I've done for you and my life is out of control. More often than not, you find people that are obeying God halfway. The Bible says he paid the fare. Anytime you run from God, you'll pay the fare. The songwriter said, sin will cost you more than you plan to pay. It'll keep you longer than you plan to stay. The Bible says he went down into it with them. Later in the book, we read that He went to sleep in the belly of the ship. You know the story, and a great storm came up. Do you remember that? If you can picture it, I'm not going to take the time to develop it. Just want to bring back some memories to you. Do you remember the storm came up to the point that the mariners, they're fearing their lives. 
They cry out to the heathen gods, thinking that maybe they've got some evil in their life. They're praying out to their gods. They're throwing cargo overboard, not to lighten the ship. They're throwing an offering overboard to the gods that don't exist. They're wasting good stuff. They're throwing money into the sea, hoping to appease the wrath of false gods. The problem wasn't the heathen. The problem was a backslidden preacher in the belly of the ship. The problem in America has never been the White House. It's always been the church house. Judgment must begin in the house of God. Second Chronicles, you know it. Don't let it become old to you because it is the only hope we have in this nation and any other nation, by the way. If my people, he's not talking about lost congressmen or lost political leaders. He's not talking about your neighbors. He's not talking about the immoral crowd. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Most Christians today pray for revival. They know that America's going down the tubes. If something doesn't happen, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, it's going to be dangerous for them to live here. The sad thing is we don't think we're part of the problem. We think it's everybody else. And until we humble ourselves and pray, not just vain repetitions pray where we see God do the miraculous and by the way you'll know when he does and seek my face and turn from my wicked ways too many people are so interested on the outward let's get him cleaned up on the outside first no because what happens is, like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly. If all you emphasize is the outside and you, you do an end run around humbling yourself before God, praying and seeking God's face, you may turn over a new leaf. You might make a resolution. You may intend to do good. But before long, you're going to go right back to it. We need a people that will humble themselves before God and continuously remain humble and pray and seek God's face. Turn from our wicked ways, then. Circle that word. Then he'll hear from heaven. Then he will heal our land. These poor mariners, I can't, Help but have pity on them. It reminds me of the world today. They're, they're throwing anything of value overboard. They're, they're throwing their morals out. They're throwing their money away. They're throwing their minds away. Trying to get happiness in their life. When the problem is really backslidden Christians that are not doing their real job. A few years ago, I took my car to Montgomery Wards, a local franchise in Chicago that is now 
bankrupt and closed up. Took my car to get some tires put on there. I'm not a mechanic. You men, some of you men could have done it for me. I understand that and you're thinking that, but uh, I barely can write a sermon, let alone fix a car. And this is back before YouTube and I got YouTube now and I learned how to change a light bulb. Thank you, YouTube. It was a help to me. I went to get my <coughs> tires replaced. I'm sitting in the lobby there, and you know, I think most of you have been to those uh, workshops. And between the garage and this sitting area, those sitting areas, they sit there with a TV blaring some liberal show and and so I'm trying to read a magazine that's got to be 22 years old and reading that. And I'm, I'm in the room and there's probably a, several ladies, a couple of other guys in the room. This is before cell phones, thank the Lord. I don't know why you people have cell phones and call people when you're amongst a bunch of other people. If you're going to do that, step outside because you talk as if they're right next door. They're ta you're talking so loud on your cell phone, you don't need your cell phone. The whole world can hear you. I just had to get that off my chest. It has nothing to do with the illustration. I'm sitting in there and, and I'm waiting for my car to get done and a mechanic comes in. He had his paperwork, turned it in to the clerk at the desk and went back out, and when he went out, the door got caught. You know, it didn't swing shut like it normally would, and now we can hear the noise out in the garage, the clang, bang, and guys yelling and all that, and all of a sudden, one guy got ticked, and he yelled real loud, you can just go to H-E-L-L. -L. And immediately, I became angry. And I stood up, and I'm I'm going to walk out into the garage to find out who said that and rebuke them. There were ladies in the room, and I, I, I thought, that, that's just wrong. They shouldn't swear like that. They're going to swear. Don't swear so loud that we can hear you and at least have, show some respect for the ladies in the room. And I start to go out, and God says, where are you going? So, God, I'm going out there, and I'm going to stand up for righteousness. I'm going to tell that guy he shouldn't talk like that. He shouldn't cuss like that and shouldn't swear so loudly where we can hear. And God said, you do. I said, what? Am I on drugs? I don't. What do you mean I do? God said, well, you say go to all the time. Come on, God. I can't remember the last time I've ever cussed out loud. I mean, there's been times I wanted to, hallelujah, but we can't. When's the last time I even thought a bad thought? God went, come on. God said, and that quick, he brought to mind a lady that visited our church. We went to go and win her to Christ. We went to her home, and when we walked in, the next thing I know, she's commending me for how great of a preacher I am. She's commending me for the friendliness of our church. She's commending me for the music in the church, and I'm thinking, well, let's just back this up a little bit. 
If I witness to her, she may never come back. But it's obvious she's coming back. And so I did not witness to her. God brought to mind another person when I was in a coffee shop. My heart was burdened for that person and I did not extend a track or speak to them about the Lord. And in nanoseconds, God brought two or three people to my mind and he said, Bruce, you may not say with your lips, but with your life, you're saying for all I care, you can just go to hell. I wonder how many people we walk by on a daily basis that if they take their last breath, they'll be in hell. If I were to survey the room tonight, how many people believe in hell? I venture a guess that the majority, if not all, would raise their hand and say, yes, I believe in hell. Do you really? When you believe something, you govern your life by it. The devils believe in hell. They live there. It's amazing how big of a game we can talk, but how little of real Christianity we live. How do people get like that? I mean, how do we get saved, fall in love with Jesus, want to share Christ with our family and friends, and then in a few short months, or a couple of years, we cool off and we never witnessed anybody and never went a soul to Jesus Christ. How can that happen? How can a man accept the call to be a deacon in the church and never win a soul to Jesus Christ? How can a Sunday school teacher get up and open the holy word of God to stand before a group of people to teach them how to follow Jesus when they're not following Jesus? Is that a fair question? You say, well, there's nothing fair. Okay. Is it a right question? It is. When I was a little kid, I wasn't born in the country or raised in the country. I lived in the city for a, a day because I was born in Canton, Ohio, and that was my extent. And then I moved out into suburbs. I'm not a city boy. I'm not a country boy. I'm a suburbanite. You say, what are they good for? Not much. <laughs> country boys can work. City boys know how to steal and shoot. <laughs> so my dad, he wanted me to get a taste of country living. And so he, in the summer, he would take me out to my Uncle Don's farm. He had 99 acres. He had nine children. He liked the number nine, I guess. And all their kids' names started with the letter D, as did Uncle Don and Aunt Darlene. 
And he dropped me off out there for a week or two just so that I'd get a little taste of country living and country life and really to work with my Uncle Don on the farm. They were pretty self-sufficient. They raised all their food, their cattle, their grain, their fruits and vegetables. It was really a great way to live. And my dad wanted me to have a taste of that since that's how he was pretty much raised. He dropped me off. And, and if you've never been to a farm before, do we have any Farmers in the room, anybody at all? Have any of you ever been to a farm? Would you raise your hand? Okay, then, then you know that I'm speaking the truth. The first time you visit a farm and you get out of the car, you are immediately greeted with an aroma that you will never forget. It's unique from all other colognes and perfumes that you will ever purchase in a store. And if you're a little on the neat freak side to begin with, it is very disgusting. And I could hardly breathe that stuff. And man, I stupidly asked where that stuff came from. And they just laughed to find out later, animals, they go potty wherever they want. <laughs> Whenever they want. They don't flush, they don't wipe. And if you're not careful, you're going to bring some of that with you on your shoes it was a disgusting introduction to farm life. The next morning, most kids sleep into sunrise. Some sleep past sunrise. My Uncle Don got up before sunrise. And in northern Ohio in the summer, the sun comes up rather early. And we got up long before daylight and we went out into the barn we're feeding the animals. Not only does it stink, but there's dust and dirt and you know what? Everywhere. We're slopping the pigs. There's a reason why they call it slopping. You're going to get some of that on you. We went out and fed the chicken coop. Hey, you, if you ever get nasal passages that are blocked up, just go into a chicken coop. It'll drill a hole through your skull. I'm telling you, that's the most potent aroma that I've ever taken a whiff of. We went into the barn. We fed the horses. We fed the cows. We cleaned out the stalls. We brought in fresh hay to feed the animals. We fed the dogs and the cats. We got the chickens all happy. And, and all of a sudden, just like on TV, I heard this ding, 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 ding. And it was Aunt Darlene that had a triangle on the front porch. And with that little stick, metal stick, and she ding, 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 ding. I said, what's that, school out? And my cousin just laughed. No, it's breakfast. Hallelujah. I was born to eat. And I mean, we went in and we ate. And I mean, just like you would expect on a farm, they ate. It wasn't eat 15 minutes while you're watching TV. I mean, we sat there for nearly an hour and a half talking and laughing. They'd share stories and I'd entertain them a little bit. We'd eat. I mean, it was wonderful. Then Uncle Don said, okay, let's go. We got, we got a job to do. Oh, Uncle Don, wait a second. Did I dream this? Weren't we up for several hours before breakfast? Weren't we out in the barn sweating and then all that hay and stuff sticking all over us and the smell? What do you call that? 
He said, those are our chores. We have to do that every day just to survive. But now we got a job to do. Do you know most Christians think that when a revival comes, we'll start reading our Bible, start praying more, and you think that's what revival's for. No, those are your chores. You've got to read your Bible every day. You've got to spend time with God every day just to survive. But don't pat yourself on the back. That's the normal Christian life. But now we got a job to do. And it's work. We are to go and tell others about Jesus Christ. That's our real job. I'm going to ask two questions to answer them, then we're getting on the road. Number one, why don't we, me, you, why don't we do our real job? When I first started pastoring our church, I was young. I wasn't really trained to be a pastor. Quite frankly, I didn't want to be a pastor when I was younger. So I wasn't really trained to be a pastor. I'm navigating through trying to lead the men in our church, many of them older than me. And I had a deacon's meeting, several of them. I had personally led to Christ. In fact, probably half of them at that time. The others were a little older than me. Then a couple were old enough to be my dad. And, and so I'm thinking, wow, we got we to gotta pray that our church starts winning more souls. The only I'm not bragging, but I'm the one that's bringing the people in. It shouldn't be a one-man band. This isn't a pastor's church. This is God's church. And I said, we, we need to be praying that our people get a passion for souls. And, and if I'm going to expect our church members to win souls, I need to ask you men, the deacons, why aren't you winning souls? I wasn't being condemning. I wasn't being critical. I was just asking a question. I'm a young pastor. I want to learn. I want to know why don't you win souls so I can understand why they don't win souls. And they looked at me like, you can't ask us those kind of questions. And then I tried to get them to see the sincerity of my heart. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I want to understand the mindset of people that don't witness and don't win souls. And finally, one brave man said, fear. I said, fear? Fear of what? One guy said, to blow it. Blow it. Help me understand that. People are going to hell. How can you blow that? There's not a hell number two. There's not a hell number three. What do you mean blow it? Well, I don't want to mess it up to where they would never want to. You can't. And then I began to reason with them and they all agreed. The fear that they were talking about is really pride. They were fearful to look stupid, to be unsuccessful. 
to not be able to win souls. Hey, listen, it's not your job to talk anybody into getting saved. Amen. If you can talk them into getting saved, someone else can talk them out of it. It's the work of God. Jonah says salvation is of the Lord. That's from beginning to end. Our job is to make it available. Our job is to go and tell others about Jesus Christ. Our job is to preach the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. You don't have to be good with words. You don't have to be suave. You don't have to be a walking encyclopedia of Bible. You just got to know God and tell others how you got saved. That's what a witness is, is it not? I saw this car run a red light. This guy come through and bam! Just telling you what I saw. I'm not being condemning. I'm just revealing the facts that I witnessed. That's what a witness of the Lord is. I can't explain everything, but I can tell you this. I was on my way to hell, but now I'm on my way to heaven. I heard that Jesus Christ loved me and died for my sins and was buried. He resurrected from the grave. He had the authority, he had the power to do so because he was God in the flesh. And I believed him and put my faith in him and he saved me. I don't know everything in the Bible, but I know that much. And that word that I just gave you that you could share with someone else is called good news, the gospel. And that has power. To convert lost sinners. Why don't we? Could I let you see what God thinks? Turn over to 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's just read this together. You know it, but I'm going to have you read it with your own eyes. Here's the real reason. Someone say, well, I've never been trained. Let me ask you a question, class. If you've been saved for five years or longer, how long do you need to learn how to tell others about Christ? You can get a PhD in eight years. You can be a heart surgeon in 10 years. You mean you can learn everything about surgery in 10 years? And some of you have been saved 10, 20 years and you can't learn five verses to tell someone how to be saved? Come on, think it through. We are using very weak excuses. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also, verse 1, that in the last days perilous times shall come. We're living in those days. And those perilous days are coming to the shores of America. For men, why are perilous times coming? For, the word for means because, as a consequence of, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Stop. Everything in the list after this is a result of loving your own self. When you love yourself, you're going to be covetous. 
You're going to be boasters. You're going to be proud. You're going to be blasphemous. You're going to be disobedient to your parents. You're going to be unthankful. You'll be unholy. You'll be without natural affection. You'll be truce breakers. You'll be a false accuser, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that do good. You'll be traitors and heady minded. I'm saying when we love ourselves, that's the path we're on. And then he concludes it by saying, not only are we lovers of ourselves, but we love pleasure more than we love God. Would that be a fair assessment of why we don't do our real job? Verse 5 continues, having a form of godliness. Boy, do we like the form of godliness. But we deny the power thereof. And when he says deny the power, that doesn't mean with our lips. You can have a form of godliness. When you have a form of godliness, part of that form is just bragging about Jesus and praying great lofty prayers. Denying the power means you reject that power in your life. When we love ourselves, we're going to love pleasures. Would there be anyone that would disagree with me that our world is drunk with pleasure? We have to make everything in church fun because if we don't make it pleasurable, they won't come. Right? We're living in a sad day for the church. Now, I want to ask you today, would you ask God to humble you break you because you want God and God alone to be your love. People don't like the terminology, God's the love of my life, because that's too close to the worldly term of, of romance. Yet we turn to the book of Song of Solomon, a romantic poem, and we take from that romantic poem that you could hardly discuss in, in mixed company details from that book, and we say it's a beautiful love story of a believer with his God. I'm saying God ought to be the love of our life. Why don't we? I'm convinced it's because we love ourselves. We love pleasure more than we love God. We love our time. We love our reputation. We love our work. We love our hobbies. We love it more than God. Second question. Why do people do their real job? I'm thinking of a half dozen men in our church. One of our ex-members, Brother Han, he'll know all six of these men. I could think of and mention 12 men. He'd know all 12 men. He knows who I'm speaking of. 
He knows I'm not exaggerating or embellishing. I'm thinking of one in particular, gets up in the morning, 4.30 a.m., has his own business, have your own business, gets up at 4.30 a.m. so he can spend an hour in prayer and sometimes an hour in Bible reading, two hours with God before he goes out to work. Puts in a 10, 12-hour day of work. I mean work, manual work. Most young people don't know what work is. They join a health club so they can work out. If you worked for a living, you wouldn't have to waste that money in a club. That's another sermon. He works 10 to 12 hours a day. Comes home, showers up, quickly eats and runs off to the church to go soul winning. He actually could pay someone to go in his place. And quite frankly, gives a lot of money to missions. Do you know why he does that? Well, let's ask another question. Do you think he's not tired? Do you think he wouldn't want to stay home with his wife and just enjoy an evening together? Wouldn't you think that there's work to do for his business to prepare for the next day and for the jobs that he's doing the next day? Why would a man get up so early to spend time with God, then work all day, and then come home, clean up, and rush out to go soul winning? I suggest it's because he loves God more than he loves himself. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. That word constrain means to envelop, to hold, to grip. Paul said, You wonder what keeps me going? Do you think I enjoy being whipped? Do you think I enjoy being stoned? Do you think I enjoy being threatened and lied against and living in all that kind of lifestyle? It's the love of Christ that constrains me. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, completely mature love, casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. When we love God, it will cast out fear because we only want one thing to please the one we love the most. And that's God. I was 10 years old when I led my first soul to Christ. I was in an Revival meeting. My dad, a new convert himself, his late 20s, got saved and got on fire for Jesus immediately. He had a good bass voice, and so a quartet in the church asked him to join their quartet, and he became the bass of the quartet. And in the summers, they would take their vacation to travel to country churches, and one man had a cottage up in Pennsylvania where he liked to hunt. They'd go up there and we pitched tents and our families would live in tents, camp for, for a week or so. And they would, they would host a, an old-fashioned revival meeting in a country church and pack that building out night after night after night. Quartet would sing and, and the member of the group, his father-in-law, would preach and they'd see souls saved. And here I am, just a young man, eight, nine years old, and and I'm watching the people get saved. I'm watching my dad lead souls to Christ. 
one night at a service, I was sitting about six rows back, five rows back, and across the aisle was a 16-year-old teenager. And I don't know what knit my heart with him, but from the beginning of the service, my heart was concerned about that 16-year-old boy. I'm 10 years old. And I started praying for that boy. I don't know why God laid it on my heart. I prayed for that young man. If he's not saved, I pray that he'd be saved in the service tonight. I'm 10 years old. I don't understand it to this day. The preacher began to preach and at the end of the service, souls came to the altar and Several were getting saved and the pastor got up and said, now don't go preach another sermon and whatever you do, don't embarrass anybody. But if you're sitting next to someone, don't, don't be walking around the auditorium looking for people. But if you're sitting next to someone that you believe is not saved, just offer to go to the altar with them and maybe God would use you to help bring them to Jesus. And man, that's all I needed to hear because during the invitation, I looked at that boy and it just seemed like he was under deep conviction. And, and when the preacher said, if there's someone sitting next to you, I know there's an aisle between us, but there was no one between him and me. And I walked across that aisle and I grabbed that teenager looking up at him, grabbed him by the elbow and I said, would you like to get saved? And I mean, he just started crying. I brought him to the altar and I pulled out my Bible that I just bought myself with my allowance. Still have that New Testament today. Went to the altar and went through Romans Road, Romans 310, 323, 58, 623, 10, 9, 10, 13. When I got to chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, I, I felt a hand on my shoulder. I'm kneeling with this kid and I felt a hand on my shoulder. Here it was the pastor of the church. Now, I can understand now that I've been a pastor. Pastor's looking at an audience. He sees a little 10-year-old kid going over talking to a 16-year-old that had been visiting their service. He knew the 16-year-old was unsaved. He just didn't know who the 10-year-old was. And because of that, he wanted to make sure whatever's going on at the altar is being done right, as a good pastor would be concerned. And so he, he listened in for a while. And after I finished Romans 10, 9 and 10, I looked up and I said, you want to finish? He said, just keep on going, son. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that 16-year-old boy cried out to God and got saved. And the church rejoiced that night. They've been praying for that boy. I didn't know it. I'm just a... 10-year-old kid. I'm saying that to this audience. If God can use a 10-year-old, He can use anyone. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisherman. I don't care how old you are. If you're old enough to understand that you need to be saved, if you're old enough to understand that I'm asking you to come unto me, if you're old enough to make a decision to receive me into your life and follow me, then don't worry about it. You just stay close to me. I will make you a fisher of men. 
And if we're not fishing, we're probably not following. Or surely not as close as we ought. I remember preaching one Sunday night at my church and I was preaching pretty strong. I, I'm a lot nicer now in my older years. I don't have the energy that I once had. I remember after the service, I was, wrung, I was just sweaty and wrung out, wore out. I preached on soul winning and an elderly woman came up and she was crying and I'm hoping, where's Lori? I need a woman to help this woman. I know this ain't going down well. And she came directly to me and she said, Pastor, you make me feel so miserable. Well, that's what every pastor wants to hear after he preaches his heart out. Well, thank you for the compliment, ma'am. Come back next Sunday. I'll try to do it again. You make me feel so miserable. Well, and now I feel horrible. I don't want to make anybody feel miserable, let alone an elderly woman, precious lady. I said, well, what did I say tonight? Now I'm racing in my mind trying to think what stupid statement I said. And, and she said, well, you make me feel so bad because I don't win souls. And I said, well, are you saved? Now, folks, I'm asking a question for a reason. I'm going somewhere with this, right? I'm trying to comfort this lady, help this lady. She's weeping. All I said was, are you saved? And this crying woman, all of a sudden, her whole countenance changed. Yes, I'm saved. I said, well, good. Tell me when you got saved. Well, I'll tell you when I got saved. I was invited to a revival meeting in my early 20s, and a lady invited me to church. I really didn't want to go, but she was such a nice lady and a good friend on the job. I just thought I'd go to church with her, and I went to church. And at the end, they, I mean, it was like the preacher was preaching to me throughout the whole service, telling me about Jesus, telling how he died for my sins and buried and resurrected from the grave. And, and then at the end, they had this altar call and and I thought what in the world is all that for and I thought I'm not going down there and the next thing I I was going down there she said I went down to the altar and I knelt and and I prayed and I asked Jesus Christ into my life and he saved me and I've been saved ever since I said good bravo now go tell somebody else don't tell me you can't witness you just told me You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to know if they're fallen angels or Sethites. All you got to know is men sin, all men. God loves sinners. Sent his only begotten son to die in your place and my place. He's the only one that could be a substitute sacrificial lamb because he did no sin. He knew no sin but he became sin for us. He took every wicked thought you ever had. He took every sexual sin that you can think of that all these predators are guilty of. He took all the murders of these terrorists. He took every vile, wicked sin of mankind upon himself. He drank the cup. The thing he, 
He detested. His holiness did not want sin near him. He drank the cup and he who knew no sin became sin. God pulled the window shade of heaven. And at noonday, it's completely dark. Christ cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They laid his corpse in a tomb. The Roman government was glad to have this civil leader out of their hair. The Pharisees were reluctant but rejoicing. The disciples and the multitudes were saddened. The demons of hell were giggling. But three days later, Jesus said, I'll take those keys. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. How can you not want to tell others a story like that? I'm going to ask you tonight. We're in the month of June. Since I've been with you, I celebrated my 48th anniversary a week ago, two weeks ago. Last week, I celebrated my 69th birthday. Nobody in our family gets out of their 60s. I'm hoping to be the first. And if I do, I want to come back and I want to hear that a host of you people sobered up, got serious about why God has us here, and you did your real job. You made every effort to get people into the house of God. Every chance you possibly could, you handed out a gospel track. And I pray that God would revive this church. A good church. But a church that knows I speak the truth tonight. We need to do our real job. Would you do that? Let's stand our feet.